Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. That cold case you're listening to? Nasty stuff. But you know what else is a crime? Missing even a moment of whatever you're doing to go on a drink run. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits, then get them delivered in under 60 minutes. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Simon Reynolds' book, Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcast.com. Today, Nate and Ryan open the series with a look at the book as a whole, Reynolds' background, and his experience in the UK rave and dance scenes of the 1980s and 1990s, and a bit of a look at the role of ecstasy in the scene. Email us at letitrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. Time to let it roll, or should I say techno roll, because we're back. That's right. I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, welcoming Ryan Harkness back once again, my colleague, cohort, and co-conspirator for the Techno Roll series. We finished up the first block about last night of DJ Saved My Life. Now we're starting a new series based on Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture. Big emphasis on UK in the 90s. Ryan, welcome back. Thanks for having me. It was so much fun doing uh, the first book. And uh, the second book, I think, is even better because I think it touches on so much of what we really wanted to to get into in the first one. But the first was just so con- constrained and, and, and pointed specifically at DJ history. So this one really lets it go and, and, and captures the, the whole miasma of rave. Exactly. This is I'm not telling you to take any E, but, you know. This is when people were doing it. We're going to be talking about a lot of drugs, a lot of dancing, very exciting stuff. I want to give one quote. This is from Fact Mag about the book, saying, It's not hyperbolic to call Reynolds the most esteemed music writer operating today. I'd say it is hyperbolic, but anyway, he's very, very good. His most important text is 1998's Energy Flash, A Journey Through Rave Music and Dance Culture, part personal memoir, part cultural history. It's a must-read guide to the development of homegrown rave music throughout the late 1980s and 1990s. It's authoritative, insightful, and stacked with recommendations for neophytes trying to get a handle on one of the maddest, messiest eras in UK pop history, which is me, because... I mean, I'm not as newbie to this as I was, say, five, six, seven years ago when I picked up this book for the first time, but it's still pretty much all new to me. And fortunately, I had a few dance club and rave experiences, and I'm not going to comment on the E, 
let's say in Texas, we call it X and yes. And so I've, I've been there, done that, <laughs> but I didn't know what I was doing. And this helps me explain um, what was going on. So I guess let's just dive right on big picture and, and what we're trying to do with this. I mean, it fits into the, the, the Let It Roll project, which is essentially discussing the history of recorded music and secret tease. This is a finite game. Recorded music started in the late 1800s, and I believe we might live to see the end of recorded music um, in our lifetimes. So uh, that's that's a fun thought. But this we're trying to understand these big waves that happen, and dance music is one of these big things. And we're trying to connect the dots because, you know, I was raised rockist, just like Simon Reynolds, and always looked at things in terms of albums and artists, the great rock stars, the great artists who made art. And dance music just throws all of that stuff away completely. And that was a cue for Ryan who did pick up. <laughs> uh, sorry, I mean, you you were you were spellbinding me here with this story that you had about how you were coming from being a rockist and in, in, into well, not not ever really crossing over into a rave, but at least appreciating it a bit. And uh, you're right, Simon Reynolds did did come into it a rockist himself. He specifically said he was a punk, and and a lot of his uh, a lot of that punk attitude comes through on it, and that's what I, I really like about. What he's kind of got going on with this book is that he takes a very punk rock take on it. And he and just like punk rock, I think at first was kind of laughed at. And now it's been legitimized. Dance music is kind of in a similar phase. Back in 1998, that wasn't the case. He was one of the first people pushing forward the idea that not just not just dance music, but the drugged out like 3 a.m. rave, hardcore rave tracks those are just as legitimate as, as anything else. And it's a, uh, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting sell back in the day. I think it's an interesting sell even now, but I love the fact that he opens up the book basically by just saying, this is what it's about. It's about the da underground dance music scene is being pushed forward by this, by, by what makes people go nuts on drugs late at night. Absolutely. And, and, you know, just like punk rock succeeded quickly in England, I mean, it went from zero to overwhelmingly popular and dominant in 1976 and 1977. Dance music did the same thing in 89, 90, 91, 92 in the UK. And it did not happen in the States until, what, 2015, 2005? I mean, somewhere in there, dance music finally became a usually popular music, even though we'd had raves and dancing in the States. And a lot of this music originated in the U.S. I mean, Germany and Detroit and Chicago were like the laboratories where electronic dance music was perfected. But it was the Brits who seized on it as a popular movement that totally changed their musical path. I mean, you know, this is the same Britain that produced heavy metal. And you just don't get rock bands out of England much anymore. I mean, you know, you still get some, but they used to just have some kind of factory in Birmingham and Sheffield and Leeds that just produced these meatheads with guitars. And something big happened in the late 80s, and we'll talk about that, that totally changed British culture. And then they took it to the world. And that's kind of been their role ever since the Beatles of processing and perfecting American musical innovations and then taking them global. And and I mean, that, that phenomenon will probably end. Maybe it already is ending. But for these last few decades of Anglo-American cultural dominance, that's how it's worked with, with Britain kind of being the ambassador to the world and um, 
kind of basically they translate innovations that African-Americans created in such a way that they're popular with white people around the world. Um, you know, so yeah, it's, it's interesting that the the Brits were the tastemakers on this one here again, um, and and how they it, it's kind of unusual for such a you know a relative monoculture to to be able to to consistently lift up more ethnic music, uh, but you know we talk about the rave scene in the U.S. not breaking big until maybe 2015 or something like that. You know, and and to to me. I feel like it's always a mistake to talk about the rave scene in America as as only kind of arriving once it hit that mainstream acceptance. Uh, as a cultural milestone, it, it it went big in the UK and they kind of drove everything. But we were taking our cues from the UK all through the late 90s and early 2000s, and and the the underground rave scene uh, was was really something. And I think that it's kind of I, I believe we end up talking about it quite a bit later on in the book. Uh, and it's it's just as relevant if not more to to the kind of mainstream monster that that ended up happening i always i always just get bugged when when we try to put things into context into the context of what's mainstream what's popular what what actually breaks what sold units i think a, a big problem with maybe that that uh, the rock background is that you know the billboard charts end up paying too much you paying too much attention to those and not into the little pockets of what's going on in all these different areas and and you know it was really bumping in america in north america and all around the world, even if it wasn't really doing much uh, to to pad the fat cat's wallets. Absolutely. And it was definitely impacting the culture. I mean, I can remember there was, you know, the big wave of jam bands type stuff in the in the early to mid 90s. Like there was grunge and then the jam band thing came along. And then there was a whole new generation of younger kids that I worked with that I got to know who were going to these raves, who were dancing, all this stuff. And, and, you know, and it was chasing, um, my much younger admin around in the nineties is why I was going to raves a couple times I did it and, you know, uh, totally inappropriate and wrong. And man, was there some crazy stuff going on, uh, hmm. and, and, and that scene and, and, you know, I thought I was jaded coming out of the punk rock and the hardcore scene and had been to lots of metal shows and, dealt with all kinds of crazy drugs, skinheads, rohypnol, I mean, you know, everything. Then the rave scene was a whole new animal with the pacifiers and the lights and the and the music. And it was even noticeably different and new from what I had seen, you know, going to clubs like the last club where legal ecstasy was being handed out in Dallas in the mid-80s. It was very different. I mean, the music was... I don't want to say it had been whitewashed because I didn't even really register that techno and house were black music. It just seemed so futuristic and anonymous to me. Um, but it was very clearly different and the crowds were, were different. And, you know, so that's what we're going to try to discuss this whole thing. But, and there's another aspect of this that fascinates me is that, you know, if you look at the history of dance music through since the late 1800s, there used to be a thing called the conductor or the band leader. You know, people like Paul Whiteman and Bob Wills and, you know, Benny Goodman played an instrument. But there were people that just stood there with a baton and they led the dance. And dance music used to constantly be on singles. You know, you got the twist and, and all kinds of instrumentals. I mean, Dwayne Eddy, Rumble by Link Ray. These instrumental records would be huge. And I, and I was always wondering, why did that stop? And what happened was rock abdicated dance. Like rock and roll was dance music, 
but rock became this thing that you set there, smoked a doobie, and, and put your headphones on and listened to the quadraphonic sound of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer or whatever, and you didn't get out and dance, and disco took that over. And so, you know, the first book that we talked about really explained that to me, how the DJ took over the role of the old band leader. Somebody has to watch the dance floor and see what's making the people move, and the DJ became that person. And then the DJ became the artist and the performer. So we've kind of been through that. Now Simon Reynolds is going to help us drill down on what happened in England in the 90s. And it's not just England. He's got chapters on Detroit, the second wave of Detroit, which was an area that we thought um, that Brewster and Broughton kind of were weak on. But let's do a quick summary of the kind of topics we're going to hit. But first, let's hear our first song. And, and this is giving you an insight into where Reynolds is coming from. This is one of the groups he mentions as being big and influential on him when he first started seriously paying attention to music. And this is John Lydon, formerly Johnny Rotten's Public Image Limited, and their song Death Disco, a.k.a. Swan Lake, from Top of the Pops. Johnny Rotten's Public Image Limited doing Death Disco, a.k.a. Swan Lake, a song for his mother that quotes Tchaikovsky. And it's not the kind of thing that was on the pop charts in America in the early 80s, but it is the kind of thing that was on the pop charts in Britain. And it definitely impacted Simon Reynolds' thinking because here's an artist in Johnny Rotten who is on the absolute cutting edge of rock, who basically walked away from that completely you know, after one album, quits the Sex Pistols, starts PIL, and is totally obsessed with disco and dub and reggae. And that's the kind of stuff he was cutting. And there was a whole movement of bands like that. Joy Division and then New Order, The Slits, um, Killing Joke, on and on and on. These bands are pioneering industrial, and they're kind of laying the groundwork for people like Simon Reynolds to be open to what's going to happen in rave and, and falling into the devil's music. Exactly. Exactly. Um, and so let's just run through a quick list of the chapters. Um, he's got, got an overview and inside he's got a, uh, everything starts with an E he's going to talk about ecstasy and rave music. Then he's going to go back a tale of three cities, which we'll focus on next week where he sort of, it'll be review for us. Um, but always good to get review on Detroit techno, Chicago house in New York, garage then then he's got a chapter on acid house and uk rave then madchester positivity and the rave and roll crossover that's the moment where rock and roll tried to absorb edm as it was taken over england then hardcore you know the score the second wave of rave uh the crusty raver movement then we'll get into intelligent techno ambient and trance then things are going to get ugly the uk rave dream turns into nightmare then we'll go back to Detroit for Underground Resistance, Carl Craig, that kind of stuff. A chapter on the Pirate under, pirate Radio, which popularizes stuff. Then Jungle takes over London. Then he's going to go into GABA and Happy Hardcore. Kind of wondering about his timeline there because that was earlier, but it's in Holland. And 
So uh, it kind of makes oh, sense. Well, they had they had renaissances that came through. You had you had uh, Gabber and Happy Hardcore earlier on is is more. It just got mashed into that generalized hardcore rave music label, and and later on they kind of became their own things. After old school hardcore kind of went out of style, and then Gabber and Happy Hardcore came back and became their own things. So I'm excited to hear about that because that was a big part of what I was all about. Cool, cool. And then, then he's going to go to America and talk about U.S. rave culture, going to cover seven years in one chapter there. Then he's going to get into trip hop uh, and then uh, drum and bass versus tech step. And then uh, digital psychedelia, where he's going to talk about sampling. Then he's going to have uh, a chapter on the artsy experimental wing of post rave music. Uh, then something on the spirituality of rave music. It's going to then wrap up with – wrapped up the original book with a discussion of 90s house development, Speed Garage, and Big Beat. Then he's going to get the, the trance uh, comeback, then UK Garage and Two-Step, another chapter on uh, DJs. Then he's going to take it – this is all from the new edition. He's going to take it into the 2010s with the uh, 80s revival and retro electro, and then he's going to uh, wrap it up with an overview of – rave culture's second decade so a lot of ground to cover um and he starts this book with this preface and he says you know what would i have done differently if i if i had written this book from my perspective in, in 2016 or whenever he put this out and he said you know i would have covered more about how house diversified in the 90s i would have been less dismissive of trance and progressive I would have had more on the prehistory of rave kind of the 70s and 80s uh, street sounds culture that it emerged from the post-disco club styles, how industrial and electronic body music fed into dance culture, and all these topics are great and interesting, but he says, but no, then it would have been twice as long and only half the book, because he says, you know, go ahead, this is my truth. Tell me yours if you disagree. So, uh, and I, I mean, I think if there's ever a complaint about these brave history books, I don't think it's ever that, you know, they didn't talk about house music enough. You know, and uh, and Energy Flash doesn't have to do any of the rave prehistory because last night a DJ saved my life hits that out of the park so so thoroughly. Uh, I remember the first time I read Last Night a DJ Saved My Life, like you know, back in the early 2000s. Um, I, I kept on saying, when's it going to get to the actual rave stuff because it spends so much time laying that groundwork. Now, when we went over it again. Uh, I loved all that stuff because I finally kind of realized uh, where it fit. But, uh, you know, it, that that's all covered already in another book. And I feel like it couldn't be done better. Uh, ironically, he says, you know, he wanted should have been less dismissive of a, dismissive of trance. Uh, and he wished he talked more about industrial and electronic body music. Uh, you know, if if. In, in the the new chapter that he finally adds in on trance, you know, he never even mentions the fact that all of the the trance guys that basically built the movement in Europe were electronic body music and industrial guys. So it's funny how, at the beginning, he regrets the fact that he doesn't end up talking about these things enough, and then in the in the redo, he kind of misses his opportunity. So, yeah, what are you gonna do? Yep, yep. You know, I, but I think I think what he's got is a really solid work here, and. I actually think we could use a little bit more about the 70s and 80s British sound system culture, something that connects it with reggae. And I have a feeling that those books are out there, um, something that really dives into the, the Jamaican-London connection and, and, and the way those sound systems got out there. And I've also become fascinated with that whole era of sound to sound and Ace of Bass and CNC Music Factory and these groups that were kind of mixing dance music and hip hop and, and having big pop success there. Uh, in the early 90s. But yeah, I don't think any of that stuff is, is that missed by this book. Um, for, for, forgive me. 
my refrigerator turning on and spraying some water into the freezer there. Um, and so, yeah, Reynolds' background is that he's a British rock writer who started out in the 80s. So he's a little bit older than most of the people who are participating in the scene. But I think that gives him the observer's perspective. Like it's almost always outsiders who create the most innovative music. And it's almost always outsiders who are the observers and reporters on these scenes. And, you know, he says he was lucky to have come along at a point when post-punk was looking at dance music for its future. Very different than he would have had he been an American writer in the early 80s when dance music had been, you know, disco sucked basically right off the map. And so, you know, he's, he's got a very different perspective than his American contemporaries there. But he admits that, you know, even though he was writing stuff and saying, what I want is a psychedelic revival that'll bring Dionysianism. And this is a thing where, you know, you've got Apollo and Dionysius. And Apollo is the official musician of the gods and the academy and the you know the fine art stuff and dionysius is the wild guy the god of wine where things get drunk and crazy and you have these ecstatic orgiastic musical experiences and that's what he was looking for but and it's i think it's important to notice note too that that had kind of not been a thing everybody would kind of ended up in this era you know through the 80s kind of just getting too cool for school. Everything was very, it ended up being kind of more straight laced than maybe it should have. And, uh, everybody kind of had a stick up their ass at a certain point. You, you were no longer able to get out and just dance like a maniac. There were, there were, there were rules unspoken, sometimes spoken, uh, you know, you couldn't get into many clubs, uh, without, without wearing the right thing or doing the right thing. So, uh, you know, you gotta, you gotta put it in the context of how, uh, kind of pent up and locked down the uh, people were at this time. Yeah, that, that new romantic Margaret Thatcher era dance music when the DJs are obsessing about rare groove and jazz funk and you have to have the right suit and the right look. And even then you might not get into the club, you know, very exclusive, very wealthy um, and definitely kept, you know, the black folks and the young kids and the marginal people off, off the scene and off the dance floor. But let's go ahead and hear our next tune. And this is the kind of thing that Reynolds was an early advocate of and then came to disavow. I don't know that he's disavowing the music, but just saying that, that if you're looking for the future of dance music, this is the wrong kind of stuff to be looking at. This is Orbital doing Chime, and this is a live version from Glastonbury 94. And that was Orbital doing Chime, um, their song live at Glastonbury in 1994, the song that had come out a few years earlier. And, you know, he deeply regrets. I think he took I think he coined the term progressive dance to describe artists like um, Orbital, also the Orb 808 State, the Shaman and the Ultramarine, quote, on the grounds that were making music that made sense at home and at album length. And so he's admitting, like, he's interested in this music. He's following it. But he's doing it by buying records, taking it home and listening to it like he would, you know, a Miles Davis record or a Beatles record or a Pink Floyd record. And he admits that, quote, that has since for me become the very definition of getting it completely wrong, that you have to be out in the club. You 
probably need to be a little bit messed up or at least able to participate in the ecstatic state that everybody else in. You have to hear it on the club sound system. And it's just, you know, it's one of those things I think. And I made the same mistake for years and years and years trying to understand disco. I would go out and buy the MFSB record or, you know, I, I would listen to the Donna Summer albums. And I was I was looking at it as a production, a producer artist thing, not as a dance club thing. And I was totally oblivious to the role of the DJ. And to me, it's like, you know, the joke about why, you know, where'd you drop your car keys? Oh, down on the corner. Well, why are you over here looking at looking for them? Oh, because this is where the lamppost is, you know, like you're never going to find what you're looking for if you're not looking in the right place and in the right way. And that's what he finally figured out. Yeah. Even, uh, I've, I've had this happen where you're really like a DJ and then you go to the HMV and you pick up their, their album and it's just not what you heard at the club. And of course they're trying to, they're trying to do this pretentious thing because they think they have an understanding of what an album is. And I mean, you know, maybe they're right at the time that this is what an album had to be, but it has no representation of what they were doing in the club. Uh, and, and just in general, it definitely wasn't the era of big name rave artists. So you can't really chase guys down like that. A lot of the big artists, like the few otter geniuses that he was looking for, they're just releasing tracks under a whole disposable or rotating list of artist names, not making any sense, or they're being anonymous when there's even a, a name stamped on the record at all. The best stuff wasn't at the top of the charts. It was tucked away halfway through a mixtape that someone gave you. And you still don't know maybe even who the DJ is or what the track is. It's a completely different way of trying to follow music versus like keeping up with the latest pitchfork reviews. And, and there's so much of it is coming out from all directions. You'd be luckily lucky to, to, to properly identify the genre, let alone the artist. So you just got to let it like wash over you and, and happen and, and not think about it that much. It, it ends up being disposable and not, not in a bad way, but just in kind of a, like that chemical brothers album surrender. You just got to surrender to the fact that you don't know what's going on musically and that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. And that totally threw me. I, you know, I it didn't even occur to me to ask when I went to dance clubs in the 80s or raves in the 90s, you know, what is this song or who is this artist? It never really even occurred to me. And I was aware of the specialist dance bin at the record store. And I knew there was a record store that sold nothing but dance music. And I knew some people who were DJs, but it just, you know, never put the whole thing together. But like I said, I, I was inadvertently having closer to the accurate experience of the music rather than you know trying to like like i can imagine these days i would be out there with my phone hitting shazam on every number you know what is this what is this and keeping a list of of all the songs in the set and like unless you're a professional dj trying to compete with artists that is the wrong way to go about it but before we take our sponsor break i want to read one quote that reynolds kind of used as a manifesto before he even had his quote Revelation, which is a terrible pun that he used. I have to repeat. <laughs> but this is from um, a New Music Express writer, Barney Hoskins, in 1981. He's talking about the birthday party, which was Nick Cave's um, post-punk band. But he had this quote that really meant a lot to Reynolds, and, and it's ultimately something, a vision that was fulfilled later on by the rave music. He said, what we must lose now is this insidious, corrosive knowingness, this need to collect and contain. We must open our brains that have been stopped and plugged with random information, and once again must our limbs carve in air the patterns of their desire. Not the calibrated measures and slick syncopation of jazz funk, but a carnal music of total release. We must make of joy once more a crime against the state. 
And it's just amazing. Rave did every one of those things. Yeah, definitely. And I, I love the fact that it kind of just lays into the idea that this kind of energy is almost, you know, uh, and practically, literally, in some places, illegal. And uh, it really did do that. Yeah, and the cops are going to come in, and we're going to talk about you know the downside of X and how it creates this vicious cycle. But there for a minute, um, this joy just came into the world in a big way. And the mass acceptance was a big part of that joy. I mean – you know, like we we read about in Last Night of Disco Save My Life, you went from the 80s, which had this uptight, exclusive dance club scene. Meanwhile, the punters are all out there being soccer hooligans or football hooligans and brawling in the streets and, you know, getting British travelers banned from continental Europe because of all the riots and, and brawls that came with them everywhere they went. And then suddenly something happens and, and it's peace and love and it's a mass phenomenon. So it's, um, you know, it's, it's crazy time. But let's hear from our sponsor. And when we come back, we'll continue through Simon Reynolds' journey into rave. Oh, we're in for a long one. A long weekend, that is. And you deserve to spend it on the couch with a glass of something good. Luckily, there's Drizzly, the number one app for alcohol delivery. With Drizzly, you can compare prices on the biggest selection of beer, wine, and spirits. Then get them delivered quickly. So download the Drizzly app or go to drizzly.com. That's D-R-I-Z-L-Y.com today. So I took the sponsor break a little early. Hopefully Steph can forgive me on that. But I think uh, Reynolds has another insight and, and that elaborates on um, – what he meant by getting things exactly wrong, because he says when an underground scene starts talking about, quote, progress and, quote, intelligence, that means it's gearing up to play the media game as a prequel to buying into the industry structure. And that's definitely something we saw. And that's kind of ultimately how um, EDM broke into the American pop mainstream. But in the 90s, you have this wave of artists, Moby, the Chemical Brothers, Fatboy Slim, who and Orbital and others uh, who and KLM, um, or KLF, sorry. What is it, the copyright? Is it KLF or KLM? Uh, it's the KLF. The KLF, thank you. And um, yes, my senile brain is losing it. But you get, you know, it's it's a marketing move. And once people have albums and they have a press release and they sort of have a manifesto, then the machine kind of knew what to do with them and how to market them on a bigger scale. But Reynolds' argument, it says, that's the exact opposite stuff that what he found is that following the most extreme stuff, the stuff that seems the most disposable, that seems the least likely to be progressive or future-oriented, the stuff that's strictly pleasing the punters out there on the dance floor, feeding the lowest common denominator, he says that's what turned out to be the ground roots of dubstep and jungle and drum and bass and grime and et cetera, and et cetera. It was, it was because he came in late and and just happened to like the hardcore stuff that was out there that he followed it closely and got to watch it develop into these all these other forms that would be so influential and he gets into a thing that he says um music shaped by and for drug experiences can go further out precisely because it's not made with enduring 
art status or avant-garde cachet as a goal. So it's when people are free to just make music and just freak people shit on the dance floor. That's when the real art happens. Ironically, when artists is not looking over their own shoulder and not thinking about the future and not trying to make a big statement. Um, you know, he says rave is more than music plus drugs. It's a matrix of lifestyle, ritualized behavior and beliefs. So kind of like hip hop has a whole ethos, rave music has a whole ethos. He says, rave has politicized me and made me think harder about questions of race, gender, and technology than I ever had about rock. And it's so true because so many of the, the audience, uh, you know, the people dancing are women. So many of the people creating the music are of African descent and are, you know, cast out. And I mean, C-A-S-T-E, cast in our system. And it broke him out of his white white dude rock critic mode and made him think about things from other people's perspective just just because yeah it, it's a thing i really like about simon there's like several parts in this book where he says i thought it was this and then i found it was like that which is not only refreshing to to read these days uh but like with a book like this i think it's useful sometimes to explicitly lay out the common misconceptions people have for the rave scene because those need to be broken down if you're going to understand things properly so rather than just kind of explain somebody and, and let explain something and let let people maybe miss the point you have to hit them over the head with them saying look i know that you think it's this but it's really this and, and a perfect example of that is you know that ballsy theory opens the book with that the essence of rave resides with hardcore pressure the rave audience's demand for a soundtrack to going mental and getting fucked up and uh, you know, i've seen that in practice enough to say he's Partially, if not mostly right. And I just like the chutzpah of him saying it because it never gets said. Like the 150 BPM stuff, the gonzo drug music never gets the credit it deserves. And, uh, you know, to start out by saying, we're going to respect this, guys, because it deserves it. Count me in. I'm, I'm like on board, man. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And tell us a little bit because he talks about the second wave of rave. Give us a little preview of what was that what was happening there and how it differed from i guess the first popular wave of rave in england in, in 8990 what what was different about 9192 uh than the first you know happy days of of acid house oh i'm assuming he's talking about you know the first push was the the shoom group and how uh how 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 that club basically kind of kicked everything off and you had a couple of clubs in london doing everything and then the second the second generation was a bit of the democratization uh, where where every neighborhood had a promoter holding an event out in a, in a cow field out in the countryside and and everything just went uh, it, it no longer centralized, no longer the cool the cool clubs downtown or the place that you really had to know where it was going on in this play in, in this kind of context, you had the info line, you could make it. Uh, you, you had some friends, they were able to get there. It was, uh, it, it was, it was a lot more open and, uh, you know, a lot of people talk crap about it because it got too big and it sold out already, you know, talking about 1992 being too big and having sold out. I think the best parts of the rave scene was when it was really democratized and everybody could have access to it. I've never been a, a snob about these kinds of things. I think the more people that get to come through and experience the music and experience the unity, the better. And uh, I really think that that second era was, was something magical until it wasn't. Yeah, and he gets into that. And I want to read a little bit um, from Reynolds where he says, In London circa 91, 92, 
Hardcore referred to ultra-fast, breakbeat-driven drug noise, and it was abhorred by all right-thinking techno-hipsters. To me, it was patently the most exhilaratingly strange and deranged music of the 90s, a mad end-of-millennium channeling of the spirit of punk, punk in the sense of 60s garage music and 70s stooges and sex pistol sentences, into the body of hip-hop, the spirit of punk, transferred into the body of hip-hop and by that he means break beats and bass and samples he says he says there's been no small glee let me tell you and watching hardcore evolve into jungle and drum and bass and thereby win universal acclaim as the leading edge of contemporary music so he does do a little bit of gloating when he gets things right he's not only willing to beat himself uh when he when he gets things wrong but he's uh willing to gloat and i love that notion of the spirit of punk transferred into the body of hip hop um, or, you know, or house. And, and this relationship between hip hop and EDM is something we talked a lot about with the, the last night of disco, a DJ saved my life book. And, and I think that's going to continue. And, you know, as we talked about when we did talk about jungle and drum and bass was that was the real first emergence of a native British Afro-British music form that came to dominate the whole scene. So, you know, it's like minorities all the way down. It's not just African-Americans who are a pretty large group. I mean, it's 10% of the American population. Afro-Britons are a much smaller chunk of the population in a much smaller country. And yet uh, they were the mouse that roared and took over the leading edge of music in the 90s. But, you know, I think you'd have to argue that hip-hop's biggest innovations happened in the 80s and the golden age. And while it continued to innovate and do interesting things all through the 90s, it kind of became a mature form, whereas EDM was the seething, boiling pot of innovation. And it starts with things like our next song. This is from MAD, Mental and Dangerous. This is the drum dance. And after we hear a snippet of it, Ryan, you're going to tell us why you picked it and what it means. mad mental and dangerous doing the drum dance and you picked this as an example of the kind of music that simon was grooving to that was abhorred by all right thinking techno hipsters so tell us why you picked that track yeah it's just uh you know uh, when you're talking about shoom you're you're talking about a lot of acid house which is uh it's got a baleric uplifting feel and you can get uh, a, a nice chill vibe off of it but this here is, is aggressive it's annoying it's got lots of stabs which just you know uh, i always love the word stab because it's a it, it's a very accurate 
oral and uh, metaphysical description of, of what it's doing to you when you're hearing these stabs. So I, I wanted to pick a kind of an old school breakbeat hardcore track that represented the sound that you would hear at a rave versus maybe what you would hear at, you know, some of these, some of these more mainstream underground clubs and uh, just kind of give give people a bit of a more of an understanding of where the music was at that time and and why you know why a lot of people probably found it obnoxious because it was just I, you hear it all the time now even with like kind of uh, some trap and hip hop stuff where they oh this is just chipmunk stuff and it's like ah, it's <laughs> always has been baby <laughs> but I, I find it one of those things that Simon Reynolds talks about where he's gleefully talking about you know music like this evolving into jungle is you're always when you're into a music like this or when you're into underground music in general it takes you kind of it steps you outside of mainstream culture and it kind of isolates you a little bit within your own subgenre and then if you take that next step further into the more extreme genres it, it does it even more and it's it can be a lonely place to be like i grew up you know in in canada in a small town where everybody listened to the tragically hip and i was listening to hardcore ridiculous music. And let me tell you, I, I ate a lot of crap for it. So for, you know, 20 years later, when dance music has taken over the world effectively, I can, I can look back and I can laugh and say, I was right. And it's, it's worth being gleeful about because you, you end up being so isolated, but you end up being vindicated at the same time. Sweet, sweet vindication. Revenge is a dish best served cold. Take that right thinking techno hipsters. So, yeah. And now we're going to turn and talk about the subtext, the thing that every mom knew in Britain right off the bat. This is drugs. Drugs are bad. What the heck is going on? Who poisoned our kids? And there was a new drug that came out that it, it's was an older drug. It was discovered actually before LSD. It was synthesized by Merck in Germany before World War One, And it was the kind of thing I think they experimented with and discovered really quickly since their goal was drugging German soldiers to be more aggressive on the battlefield that uh, MDMA was not, <laughs> not the right weapon. Let's give them meth instead. Let's get these kids hopped up on meth and take that Nazi thing to Poland. But MDMA didn't work so much for that. And so it was kind of forgotten. And then it was rediscovered in the early 60s by a guy they called the stepfather of ecstasy, a guy named Alexander Shulgin at Dow Chemical, who you know was one of these cybernauts uh, out there in mental space. He he uh, resynthesized the formula for MDMA, and you know as as Reynolds describes it, it's a remarkable chemical combining the sensory intensification and auditory enhancement of marijuana and low dose LSD, and those are hallucinogens. That's a category of drugs, but it also has the sleep defined energy boosting effects of speed which is a stimulant, another category of drugs, and the uninhibited conviviality of alcohol, which is a third category of drugs. So MDMA uh, is kind of a threefer, you know, and, and it was pretty obvious from my first experience or the first time I saw a news report about it that, that it did combine this, you know, trippy hallucinogenic aspects with the energy boosting thing. But it wasn't until Reynolds pointed this out that the uninhibited conviviality of alcohol is part of the mix, too, because you'd find yourself hugging complete strangers in a club. And in some place like Dallas, which is not a friendly town, you know, generally Dallas, Texas is not a place to go up as a hetero dude 
or as any kind of dude and hug a strange dude. But um, that was happening all over the place. And, and, you know, immediately it was a new thing and very different. And he talks about how, and, and, you know, Brewster and Broughton talked about this too, how the first attempts to push house and techno in London failed. They failed hard. And that the missing ingredient seems to be in part, X wasn't part of the mix. The other missing ingredient, of course, was what they learned in Ibiza, this Balearic idea, this idea of, of taking everything in the kitchen sink and throwing it into a mix with this goal of having these ecstatic experiences. But funny how chemical enhancement helps with those ecstatic experiences and, and really gets everybody in the same page. As a yeah, kid, the, there, there's, a, there's a great quote in the book. Uh, it says, ecstasy is the remedy for the alienation caused by an atomized society. And I think that really kind of sums up um, how it's it's an essential ingredient. I, I kind of struggled with this because I'm always I'm always one of those people that tries to downplay the effect of of, of drugs on the rave scene. And you know, uh, Reynolds says, you know, this is my story. Tell me tell me yours. And I didn't touch drugs until I was 26, and I had a great like eight years of of, of raving without drugs, and it was a just as powerful. Well, you know, I, again, I can't say just as powerful an experience because once you do it, you, you understand it on a whole new level. But you understand how it's an essential ingredient in the beginning of these scenes because you've got a UK society. And I think this is true in a bunch of other areas as well. But I feel like UK society, when you point it out, people just nod and say yes, because in the 80s, it's so rigid. And it literally needs to take a pill to break through all the, the separation and anger and pent up waspishness that's going on in the societies. Uh, you know, it really makes sense when you're trying to figure out how UK soccer hooligans or, or downtown Dallas uh, bar bar freaks are, are, are all of a sudden are, these were Reagan voters. Yeah, are all turning into happy hardcore uh, dancers and hugging each other. Yeah, it's it's and 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 what you're describing of, of being out there straight, the collective mood can convey a lot of the experience of the hallucinogenic or the drug experience to people who are there not drugged. It's it's an interesting phenomenon of human group psychology, but it really can be sort of contagious. And LSD can have the same thing if you're in a crowd full of people who are tripping their balls off and you're not, but you're into the music and you're into the vibe. You can have a lot of the same experience, but like you said, there's no substitute for the kind of apocalypse in a can of you know, dropping that pill or, or taking that tap. And again, I'm not encouraging people to do that. There are a ton of risks, and we're going to talk about it. But first, let's hear a song that you picked out. This is Stefan, is it Bodzin? Bodzin? Uh, Bodzin, yeah. Stefan Bodzin, and this is Pendulum. And this is a song, this is a recent song from the last, what, couple of years ago. This is, as you described, sort of the perfection of tweak of of sound science to optimize music to maximize the drug experience this is pendulum by stephen Bosson. And 
And that was Pendulum by Steve Stefan Bodson. And so tell us about this song. Why'd you pick it and how does it maximize the drug experience? Well, it's just, you know, uh, Simon Reynolds talks so much about the, the, the interaction of the drugs and the music and how how the music is often made to amplify the drugs. And you can hear that in this track where the producer is creating this really kind of strange rolling offbeat percussion that that just rolls around your head and around the club. I remember reading last night a DJ Saved, uh, Saved My Life where they were talking about uh, the Paradise Garage where they would just play a record of a, of a train going like riot like one of those sound effect records from the 60s just rolling through the club and everybody would lose their minds and you know this is just this is just the evolution of the evolution of the evolution of this and there's so many tracks i've got directories upon directories of 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 music that 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 is just designed to trip people out and make them either if they're sober feel like they're high or if they're high make them feel like they're really high and, uh, you know, it's just if you if you want an example, if you're reading the book along chapter by chapter with us or if you've just read the book and you're you're kind of wondering about maybe a couple examples of this. I just this is this is just one one singular example of somebody who probably has done drugs, who kind of heard something and wanted to, to put that through in their music and trip people out a little bit more, too. Absolutely. And. Like Reynolds points out that the early techno and house music was not made with ecstasy in mind, although, um, you know, Frankie Knuckles at the warehouse in Chicago was definitely playing to a group of people who were getting messed up on anything they could get their hands on. It's just that X hadn't made it to Chicago at that point, although acid had. And that's how the um, term acid house came into it, because people were freaking on LSD and. And dance into to the first Acid House tracks uh, by Future, and I think it was actually Frankie Knuckles that did the the train thing. But of course, Larry Levin was his mentor, so yeah, you're probably right that Larry Levin did that first. I, I tried to nerd you, and and I checked, <laughs> you tried to I nerd you, but then you nerd yourself out of <laughs> nerding me. <laughs> exactly. So so that's a lesson. But there also t- there's also hints of why the scene is going to take some darker turns. It starts out as this just expansive, happy, loving, exciting scene. But then within a couple of years, it's taken on these darker aspects. And it's not just because the moms freaked out and the, and the tabloid media freaked out and got the cops involved. It's also something about the nature of ecstasy in that, you know, it, it causes your body to pump out all the serotonin and dopamine and the dopamine is the pleasure receptors and the and the buzz, but the serotonin is the part that gives you the the love feeling. And the way your body works, it can replace dopamine faster than it can replace serotonin. And I know from my own personal experience of messing with this stuff, I had some serious mental breakdowns and discovered I was bipolar because of hallucinogenic use. And it's because it depletes the serotonin. And if you're going to dabble in this stuff, do your research and look into ways to replenish your serotonin because that can dramatically improve your experience and prevent you hopefully from doing what happened to me which was every time i touched this stuff it would trigger a manic episode and those are bad 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 and you know that's what you see happen in the early 90s and and a big part of why the scene took such a negative turn and even the positive developments things like jungle and drum and bass are kind of expressing that paranoid uh bad mood, that bad scene. It's not just because the criminals and the drug dealers have arrived and taken over. It's also because those loved up kids have 
burned up their serotonin and they're seeking that euphoria they had the first time and can't ever get it back again. And, you know, it's, it's, um, it's a diminishing return system. It's built in. And Reynolds talks about this, that there's something about this quest for utopia and this belief that you've discovered it, especially when you've discovered it by taking a pill that you bought for a few quid. That's not actually, you know, it's like the Dr. Seuss book, I had trouble in getting to Solace Salou. It turns out those easy answers and the and the rainbows, uh, that's a warning sign. And whenever you think you've been liberated from the, the ugly realities of Earth, watch out because <laughs> those ugly realities probably have you surrounded and are about to gobble you up. Yeah, there used to be a trend uh, back on the message boards that I used to be on. After a big rave weekend, there'd, there'd be something what we'd call the Tuesdays, which is basically on Tuesday, there would be endless fighting in all the forums. And I know now we live in a world where every day is Tuesday on Twitter and on other social media. But it used to be, you know, on these rave sites, it was pretty plur most of the time. And then, uh, you know, on the Tuesday after a big party, and honestly, if we're being honest with ourselves, it would usually, you know, those those flame wars would extend into Wednesday, Thursday. Uh, just just people were notoriously in a worse moods and, and just, just obviously all bent out of shape from the weekend. And uh, they, they talk about you know, mortgaging your week to make it to the weekend. And I think there's, there's uh, really good mov movies like human traffic that, that do a good, good explanation of kind of showing that, that rave cycle of, of limping through your work week, because who gives a damn about that anyways, but still it's going to affect your mental health to, to have to be at a job that you hate and do the things that you hate while you're hating yourself even more because of all the ecstasy you're on just to make it to Friday. So you can do more ecstasy and you have to do more to get the same effect because unless you're doing it once a month, you, it's diminishing returns. Uh, just, to, just to, to repeat that cycle and you're just slowly beating yourself down into the dirt. Yeah. And then you add the wrinkle of the police and the lawmakers trying to help, quote unquote, by making this stuff illegal and harder to get. And then even cracking down on things like, uh, booths where they test the pills to see what it actually is or, or cracking down on clubs, giving extra water to dancers because there are some physical risks. I mean, people have dehydrated themselves to death taking ecstasy. It's just a vanishingly small percentage. It's not like alcohol or heroin or tobacco that the drug itself is going to kill you. Um, it can and sometimes has, but it's very rare. But this cycle, the ugliness of that cycle, that inbuilt diminishing return cycle. And also once it was illegal and cracked down on hard, then you weren't getting actual MDMA anymore. A lot of times people were buying um, LSD and that had been mixed with methamphetamine, which is a totally different animal than, than actual MDMA. And, and myself having just stumbled into getting to take it legally in Dallas in the 80s, and I don't know how much of this is a function of that was the first time I ever took it. So I had this incredible experience, but I really spent a good chunk of the nineties, not a lot of my time, but every once in a while I'd check in and say, Hey, you know, let me try that. And it would never, it was never the same at all remotely. And every time I took it, I was like, this is not X, this is not MDMA. And I think that happened all over the place. So, you know, buyer beware, especially in a, in a black market, you don't know what you're taking. And now you've got people, you know, dropping like flies uh, from fentanyl thinking they're snorting cocaine. So, you know, always 
always be careful. Um, yeah, it may, it makes you almost wistful for the days where you just get a pill that's kind of weak or, or maybe it's got acid in it instead of MDMA or it's got MDA or, or, or one of the other kind of weird, uh, sub sub offshoots of MDMA. It's like that, that seems like a, like a wistful time where the drug dealers were at least still selling you something that'll get you messed up, but it's not going to kill you. And now it's just all bets are off and you, you, you got to test everything because God knows what's going to be in it. And, uh, it's probably not going to be MDMA. And if you're unlucky, it's going to have fentanyl in it. And it's just, or, or just an opiate in general, which is just gross. Yeah. Yeah. Or, um, uh, a, a, a disassociative drug, like, like ketamine or, or, uh, um, angel dust that, that is a whole different, a whole different trip. But, any final thoughts on on the book and the chapter itself before I get the prequel for what we'll talk about next week? Yeah, I just I just you know it was kind of funny at first when we when we decided how we were going to break this up. Normally do it chapter by chapter, but obviously uh, the beginning of the book starts out a bit unusual with a with a with a I think it's called a, a prelude. And then a uh, and then an introduction and then kind of a, something something else that they also added in there. So there were kind it's, of three. It's preface, intro, and prologue. So yeah. Yeah, there we go. So it kind of starts itself off like three times in a row, and that that was kind of interesting. But I I loved it because. Uh, Simon Reynolds is a really good writer. I don't know, you know, there's, there's the blurb on the back of the book that really pumps him up. I don't know if he's the most important, but he's definitely, when you, when you spend all your time reading, you know, kind of articles, random uh, disposable articles on the internet, and then you get back and you read something that's, that's really dense and good. You really appreciate, uh, the skills of a writer again, like Reynolds and, uh, you know, I think his intro, we could, we could have spent like weeks just taking individual sentences from, from that and, and breaking them down and discussing them for an entire episode because he drops a lot of wisdom just in that, just in that one chapter or sub chapter or whatever you want to call it. So, uh, really well-written book and it's really exciting to see somebody with this much passion who is who kind of a participant but also an outsider so it's not going to delve too much into drugged out memoir and more of a it's still it's still kind of minding its p's and q's so uh it's it, it really sets us off on a, on a good journey here uh it's a it's a really good book i i encourage everybody to kind of go and pick it up and read it because you know we're going to talk about it but i don't think we're going to do justice to the pros we're going to quote him sometimes just so you can get a feel for what he's saying, but the, the guy's on to a lot of stuff. And it's even made me kind of rethink a lot of the ideas that I had going in. I start disagreeing with them and then I think about it and then I realize, okay, actually he's right and I'm wrong. So it's, <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a fun process. I'm enjoying it already. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's a quote on the back of the book that says it's um, the best available entry into what has always been a closed to the grown ups world. And as an old fart myself and a rockist and not a dancer, uh, this is a great window into a world that I kind of sort of dipped my toe into, but mostly missed. And so the book is Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture by Simon Reynolds. And we're going to be talking about it for like the next 20 something weeks. I'm Ian Ryan Harkness. And next week we'll be back with A Tale of Three Cities, Detroit Techno, Chicago House and New York Garage. So set the table for the UK rave revolution. Ryan, as always, thank you so much. It's been a treat. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. 
Next week, Nate and Ryan will be back to talk about the techno scene in Detroit, the house scene in Chicago, and the garage scene in New York and New Jersey, and how African Americans in those three cities invented and perfected electronic dance music as we know it today. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. Thank you.